Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. I taught last time that I thought that it was really the end of chapter 10. It's referring back, uh, saying that there should be a, an imitation of Paul as he imitates Christ, uh, looking back in terms of the eating of the food and the idea of doing everything to the glory of God. Now, obviously, that applies as we go down, um, but I don't think that that is what it's referring to. So I think that we should really consider verse 2 to be the beginning of this section, and so we consider that. So let's look at uh, verse 2. I'm going to read, reread just a, a couple of verses together. Um, so 2 and 3. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So first, we have a a doctrine of tradition that's presented here. Uh, There's a commendation, a praise to the brethren that they remember Paul in all things and keep the traditions just as Paul delivered them to the Corinthian church. So remembering Paul... What's that about? Hasn't he just taught about the fact that the church is not to be partisan? It's not to be schismatic? It's not to look to personalities? So is this about Paul? Is this about, hey, I know I just said, like, you know, don't pick Cephas or me or Apollos over anything, but really just, I want you to be on my team. So team Paul, everybody. That is not what he is doing. What is he doing is he's appealing to the divine revelation that comes from his divine office. It's not an office that makes him God, but it's an office that's given to him by the God-man, Jesus Christ. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he's a carrier of the message. And so the idea that he is an apostle, they're remembering him as an apostle and the message that he's brought. And that message includes the tradition. So this is the doctrine of apostolic tradition. Apostolic tradition. So the doctrine of apostolic tradition is put forward by Rome in this way. They say, one, some of it's in the scripture. Two, some of it's in the practice of the church. Three, some of it is forgotten and must be delivered by the magisterial authority of the papacy and the ecumenical councils. And so in combination, you have the apostolic tradition when you have all three. Now, just remember, in case you can't read the Bible real well, it's a hard book to read, right? It's hard, hard, hard to read. Hard to read and understand words for yourself. So, thankfully, you have the Sea of Rome to help you how to read the Bible. They're going to tell you what it means. So don't worry about it. You don't need to worry your pretty little head. In addition to that, don't worry about figuring out which councils are legitimate. Rome will tell you. In addition to that, don't worry about interpreting them. They will tell you how to do that. Now, the problem is, how many interpretations do you need? What Level of sequence. How many interpretations of interpretations of interpretations of interpretations of interpretations do you need? The point is meant to make it so that the only authority is actually the Pope. And that way the Pope can tell you black is white and white is black and you have to say, yes, sir, click your heels and goose step. That is the point. The point is to make him your God so that you have to obey. That is the design. That's the design future. It's not a bug. It's a part of the system. And that is meant to make it so you have to deal with that. So that is the danger of Rome. And the apostolic tradition is not that. That's just do whatever the Pope says. That's not apostolic tradition. If you can judge the Pope by that tradition, then that system no longer works. And so the problem is you have Popes saying 
contradictory things. You have councils saying contradictory things. You have the scriptures contradicting them. And so you end up with a mess. The Eastern Orthodox have the doctrine of apostolic tradition. And what they try to say is that the hierarchy should be judged by apostolic tradition. And the scripture is a subset of the apostolic tradition. And so they try to have the traditions. The difficulty is you have to use an empirical model to go backwards and figure out who had what traditions, when and where, and have a sequence of deliverance. And so you've got to figure out which hard drive had the read error and which one had the write error. Right? Which ones didn't take the information properly. And so you're trying to figure out which patriarchate received that and you have to chase those down and see, so go, does the patriarch of Moscow, is he the proper recipient of the patriarchate of Constantinople? And was he the proper recipient of the order of the apostolic tradition? Or do we have to take the papal see in Rome or Antioch or Jerusalem? Or should we look at someplace else? What's the order of transmission there? So you have problems with localized traditions and differences, which is one of the reasons you have different Eastern Orthodox denominations or or churches, or patriarchates, or whatever you want to call it. And they have another gospel. All of them seem to get the gospel wrong. They do a really good job at that. They're really consistent at it. They are very consistent in saying justification is by faith and works. So the apostolic tradition there seems to have broken down. They seem to have forgotten how to read the book of Galatians or Romans. And so, that being the case, it seems that we should not expect them to be able to keep other apostolic traditions very well outside of the Bible. The Protestant doctrine of the apostolic tradition is this. Scripture is sufficient. It was written by God. He caused everything he wanted to be preserved to be there. It's a complete canon, and that's the apostolic tradition. The apostolic tradition is the tradition captured in the scriptures. And so if we have a sufficient tradition captured in the scriptures, we don't need a tradition outside of the scriptures. And we don't need a patriarch. We don't need a pope. We don't need a bishop. We do not need a consolidated church hierarchy to be able to interpret this. Christ is the high priest. We are all priests. And the Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. And so what we do is we read the scriptures and we reason together through much discussion. And we seek to capture what has already been attained to, to make it easy for others to find the path. The confession of faith and the directory of worship are examples of crumbs. They're breadcrumbs to give us a trail to see what everyone has already done. And the goal is to reconsolidate each time. You go, how far have we made it as a church? And you point back with the scripture proof. So you can say, here's the doctrine and here's the demonstration from the authority. Here are the scriptures that show this to be so. So the apostolic tradition is for us in the scriptures and the work of systematization and ordering is the work of the pastor teachers to make it easier. And every individual has that responsibility. You have to systematize and order in your own mind. You have to deal with the world that is around you, and you have to deal with the fact that you live in an, exter- in an internal world that is your mind. Your mind is a world to itself. If you have wisdom, you have it for yourself. If you do not, you must bear the darkness that you live in. There is a great value to filling your own soul with light. And so pray that God would use His Word to illuminate your mind and store up the word in your hearts. It will make it so that you are able to think and you are wiser than your teachers. Verse 3. We have this delivered tradition, this apostolic tradition that was delivered. And verse 3. But I want you to know 
that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, the way that reads in English, but I want you to know, it seems kind of weird. It's like, is there a contradiction here? Is there a, is there a disjunction? There's not a disjunction. The word is day. It's not Elah. Alpha, lambda, lambda, alpha is, the, is Elah. It's the hard but. It's the hard disjunctive in Greek. Day is kind of the soft one. It can mean and. Okay? And so we shouldn't take this as a strong disjunction. What we have is, But I want you to know, or now I want you to know, that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. This is not somehow a disjunction from the tradition. In fact, it's connected. So this is important because what a lot of people want to do is they want to say what's about to happen, what we're about to read, is a localized tradition. It's a custom of Corinth. But we're set off with an introductory statement that says, I praise you all that you keep the apostolic tradition as it was delivered. This is very specifically an apostolic tradition that was delivered to Corinth. It is not something that is broken off from it. The teaching follows on. He's going to give reasons, argumentation. He's giving background presuppositions that make sense out of the tradition of head covering. That's the point. What is that background doctrine set? I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. So there is a legal authority of Christ over every individual man. He is the mediatorial king. He will judge the reprobate. He will judge the elect. He is an authority over every individual man. Two, he goes on to say that the head of woman is man. The head of woman is man. There's a delegated authority from God the Father to Christ to have authority over all man. And there's a delegated authority by the law of God that makes it so that women are born under the authority of man. Not man in general, not every man of particular men. Who are these men? First, they are fathers. Then, they are husbands. And in the absence of that, you might have, for example, when Jesus died and he handed over his mother to John, the Apostle John, to protect and provide. You have the idea of the firstborn son with the double inheritance for the purpose of protecting and providing for the mother and also for daughters and for other needs as people fall into difficulty in the family. And so the idea here is what's called historically coveture. The idea of what man is a covenantal covering in the law for a woman. And so this idea of coveture has to do with the man that has responsibility to care for, protect, provide for a woman. And so, legal representation, as well as material protection and provision. So I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Okay, so the head of Christ is God. We all know that Christ has two natures. He is God and He is man. 
in His divine nature, He is equal to the Father. However, not by essence, but by a law, by covenant, He has taken on a role in submission to the Father. And that role of submission, not by essence, but by covenant, is the same sort of submission that a woman has to a man. A daughter is of like essence with her father. Same. A wife is of like essence with her husband. Same. Right? They have the same essence. And so it is not something about the nature of woman that makes woman underneath the authority of man. It is the law order. And so that law order, that covenantal order, is the basis. Now, when we think about the human nature of Christ, the human nature of Christ is like unto us in all ways except without sin. His human nature has authority by its union with the divine nature and by the office of Messiah, the triple anointing. Prophet, priest, king. And so what we have here is a doctrine of authority that is being presented for us to think about in the church. And it has to do with thinking about the relationship of Christ to man, man to woman, and Christ to God. So there is something here about Christ's mediation, and there is something here about the nature of God and man, and about the law order. Verse 4, Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. Now, that idea of the head covering, the covering of the head, there's something about the head that if a man does it, dishonors Jesus Christ. And we were taught, who's the head of man? Christ. We just learned this. It's a good verse. Taught us that. That's a part of the apostolic tradition. And this is the background for us. And so we're continuing to reason down. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. And who's the head of every man? Christ. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. Okay. We have here this idea that there's something that a woman can do that would dishonor her head. Who is the head of woman? Man. Every man? Every man is the head of every woman? No. Particular man, head of particular woman. And it's a dishonor, it's an offense to the particular man if the woman doesn't do this thing. Whatever the head covering is. Now, verse 5. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. Now this sentence, this is either an identity statement or it is an equivalency between two different things. The identity reading would go like this. Not having, not having your head covered is having your hair cut short or having your head shaved. Okay, that's, that's 
That's the identity reading. The equivalency reading would be to say, not having your head covered, so let's take a cloth covering, would be the same as having short hair or shaving the head. And so we go, okay, so if a man has his head covered, long hair or maybe hat, something on the head, it's a dishonor to Christ. And if the woman does not have her head covered, whether they're talking about long hair or, or some sort of fabric covering, then that's a dishonor to her man, her coverture. So we want to figure out which this is. Minimally, minimally, what we've already figured out is shaved head, not good for women. Something about it, not good, not good for women. It's a dishonor to their head. Shaved head for men, maybe okay. Right? That's, that's where we are so far. Let's keep going. Verse 6. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. Okay. So, let's, go, let's read this with the equivalency reading first. Um, sorry. Let's read this with the identity reading first. The identity reading. For if a woman has short hair, let her also have short hair. Well, that's a, that's a terrifying threat there, Paul. Because their hair real short, make sure they keep their hair short. If you say it threatening enough, it would be really serious. But, if it's shameful for a woman to have short hair or short hair, let her have long hair. This is the reasoning line. This is the reading okay, of, of the identity view. Okay, let's, let's read it with the equivalency view. Okay? There's something here that's equally dishonoring. But if every woman who prays who, or prophesies with her head uncovered, right, without a fabric covering, dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if she had short hair. For if a woman is not willing to wear a fabric cover, just let her cut her hair off. But if it's shameful for a woman to cut her hair off, let her wear a fabric covering. It makes way more sense. It makes way more sense. It's, it's showing, look, this is silly. You like your long hair, but your long hair is the natural covering that shows a difference. And there's something about a fabric covering in some circumstances that if you don't have it, it's like you chopped your hair off. Okay, that's the point. So it's supposed to go from something that's a greater, obviously shameful thing to a lesser, obviously shameful thing. That's the idea. So something that's more plain to something that's less plain. Something that we think of, we feel more shame about to something that we feel less shame about. And it's trying to say, hey, these things are equivalent morally. They're equivalent morally. Now, verse 7. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. Okay? 
Notice there's a, there's a connection between glory here in the argument. How do these things relate? Okay, well, one of the themes we've noticed in the book of 1 Corinthians is the theme of the temple of God. The church is the temple of God. When the church is assembled, when we have the ecclesia, when we're called together, what we have is the church assembled. And so we're in church time, as distinct from non-church time right now. We're in the middle of a public call, and you're waiting to be dismissed, hopefully not waiting too anxiously. And so when we are in this time of the public call, that is a time when there is a special representation of the temple of God with us coming together, being individual bricks, stones, pieces. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. So in the temple, what's supposed to be on display is the glory of God. If woman is the glory of man, if she's on display, that's not appropriate. It's not appropriate. The glory of God is what's supposed to be on display. Verse 8, for man is not from woman, but woman from man. So how does this relate? This relates to glory in the sense that a man came from the ground, the breath of life, and then you have woman being taken from man. There's sort of this, man is the crown of creation. There's a refining of the dirt. And then you have woman taken out of man. And she is a refining in the sense that she is the weaker vessel like China. Right? This is the idea of fine material. And so there is a way in which we think about this. Men are built to be able to handle certain things. There is a difference in the physical design of men and women in terms of strength. There is also a difference in design of how the fifth commandment is written on our hearts so that women more easily deal with the closer in loyalty elements and men are more able to deal with the further out elements. There's a difference in terms of the tendency towards respect versus the tendency towards an intense loyalty. And so that is the way in which there's a difference of how the fifth commandment is written on the heart that helps us to understand our stations, what we're designed for. For man is not from the woman, but woman from man. So there's this refining, and there's this man acts as the coverture, man acts as the roof, he acts as the protector. He's supposed to take difficulty, pain, weight, and he's supposed to be able to protect that which is beautiful, glorious, that is the refined element Verse 9, nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Man was made for dominion, and woman was made to be his helper. She beautifies. She makes the delights of life sweeter. She is there to give balm. There is this helping element. Man is to be that which bears the weight, which goes and does certain things, fulfills certain public duties, takes public scorn, and woman is to be there, and there is a resplendence for that man in having a woman that is willing to be under his authority, to work with him, to share in the joys, to be given over things 
for the purpose of the woman to refine, beautify, use for hospitality, for the ability to make it so that the whole house can be resplendent. For man is not from woman, but woman from man, nor was man created for woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have, and it says in the English here, you'll have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And now, first of all, that little, that little like interrupter at the end there, because of the angels, people just go, because of the angels, what does that even mean? I don't know, so let's just throw out all of the verses about this subject matter. If you don't understand an argument, try to figure it out. Don't throw out everything else. So you don't get the argument, okay, I don't get what this part means. I'm going to come back and study it. Not justification to ignore everything. You know, you're talking to people at this section and they go, sure, that all makes a lot of sense and everything, but what does that half verse mean, right? And who am I right? Who's with me? Let's, not even, let's just not pay attention to it then. Until we figure that out, we don't get to talk about it. That's not how it works. It's not how it works. God tells you something, the clear parts, you go, okay, I'm going to obey the clear parts, I'm going to believe the clear parts, I'm going to figure out the parts that are not very clear. Okay? So we'll come back to that part. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. That's connected back. It's connected back. This has been a line of argument. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. The word there for symbol of authority is just authority. So it's the literal authority. She ought to have authority on her head. It was, how, do you, how, do, how do you put authority on your head? Well, it's a symbol of authority. What are we talking about? The context is we're talking about a covering. And we've seen that the idea that it's the hair is silly. You have to make those couple of verses that are together there in terms of, what is it? It's uh, verses 5 and 6. Those become silly if you make it just hair. And so if we have this idea of the cloth covering, that's the symbol of authority that should be on the head. Now, because of all the reasons given, there should be a symbol of authority on the head of the woman. The symbol of authority represents an acknowledgement that woman is made for man. It represents an acknowledgement that woman was made from man. It represents an acknowledgement that she's under the authority of a covenant head. It represents the acknowledgement that he is the glory of God and that she is the glory of man. It represents an acknowledgement that his head is Christ. It does all of that. It's a symbol of all of that line of argumentation. It's a symbol of that. Which is why in 1960, they started to disappear. Now, because of the angels... We're either talking about angels, like spiritual beings, or we're talking about preachers. Okay? Angelos used to refer to preachers, also used to refer to angels. If it's about the angels, what is the line of argument there? The angels know these truths, and when they see you wear a head covering the angels, including your particular guardian angel, sees it and is encouraged. Now frankly, whether that's what this means or not, that's true. 
Righteous angels are vexed by wickedness and they rejoice in righteousness. Now, here's the other interpretation. Because of the angels. Hey, when, uh, when a congregation is assembled together as a church, who is looking out at the congregation? Oh, the preachers. So, do you think it might help them to focus on the glory of God rather than the glory of man if the glory of man covers itself? And all that's visible to that preacher when he's looking out at the congregation is the glory of God? And you see how that might help him to remember my job is to pastor these men as heads of their homes. My job is to preach to them and for the approval of them rather than looking for the approval of women. Now let me, let me just say something that we all know. Who are better conversationalists? Men or women? Women, obviously. Right? Okay. So, why is there a tendency for pastors to be effeminate? Who do you think in their congregations talk to them more? Who do you think talk to them more about teaching or their opinions about the church or whatever? We have a patriarchal culture. We've tried real hard to have representation, have the men be involved. But the general tendency in the American church is that there's more women, the women care more, the women talk to pastors more, and then the pastors bypass the husbands. They just bypass fathers and husbands. In fact, they've come up with a ministry of husband bypassing called women's ministry, and they've come up with a ministry of father bypassing called youth ministry, and they've been figuring out how to make sure that they can avoid the husbands as much as possible. Okay? If women have their heads covered, it encourages pastors to talk to the men and to remember the authority chain. And it encourages them to remember not to usurp them. Now, maybe it's talking about the angels and not the pastors. But just so you know, it has that effect on me. Now, the symbol of authority on the head helps the angels, whoever they are. There's something about them that's a blessing to them. Verse 11. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. Right? In the Lord. This is not just the natural sense. In the natural sense, hyperpatriarchy reigns. But what happens when you abandon the church is you get Lamech. Right, you end up with hyper-patriarchy, women are property, women are disposable, men get power, men don't care about each other, they're just jostling for hierarchy, and women are a prize, they're spoils of war. That's it. Okay? That's what feminism does. You throw off Christianity to establish a social order, that is, I guarantee it, what comes. Why? Because that's what's happened for the last 6,000 years in non-Christian societies. And that's what we're told is going to happen when we look at what happened in the Bible before. So that's the tendency. In the Lord, though, a dignity is given to women, and there's a law order, and there are authority structures, and the preservation of the dignity of women as the glory of man. Neither man is independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. In order to be settled, men need women, generally. 
in order to build homes and have them be beautiful and to be able to have hospitality and have all that work well, there's a general need for women. To have children, there's a need for women. A holy seed requires women. The raising of children. You know what happens when men marry ungodly women? What happened in Genesis before the flood? If you marry ungodly women, what happens is you give your entire life's work over to a woman rather than God, and she will destroy it, and she will make your children hate the God you serve. And so if that's the case, you need a godly woman, men. And you need the godly woman so you can work together and so you can see the advance of the glory of God in the earth and so that you can make little knowers of God and fill them with the knowledge of God. And she will help you to be exalted in the land and to be known amongst the elders of the land. She will help to extend your dominion. She will be a helper to you in dominion. And the two of you will reign as kings and queens. Man is not independent of woman, and woman is not independent of man in the Lord. We depend upon the fact that there was a woman who had the seed of the woman, so that we have our Savior born as a man. Verse 12, For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. Now that's true of not just in the Lord, that's true of every man. We were all born of woman, except for Adam. Verse 13, Judge among yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? So look at at verse 12, sort of ends a line of argument, and it's talking about the dignity here. It's talking about the mutual dependence of man and woman in the Lord and also in the natural order of things. And then it talks about going back to the natural order of things, the dependency of everything on God. And therefore that goes back to the idea that therefore God should be glorified in the worship. Verse 13, judge among yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? The interpretation that some people give, right? People became very bad at reading this chapter around 1960. They just really got bad at it. So you read seminary papers written since then, and they're finding every like, really bad argument they can find. It's like, yeah, yeah, good. Let's get all the bad ideas out. Let's get all those out so we can just move past them. That's what happened in the last several decades. So seminary's done a really good job of putting all the bad possible ideas out of how to interpret this text. And one of the ones that they've done is they have read verse 13 when it says, judge among yourselves, it's saying, see, therefore every individual church has the right to just make whatever judgment they want. No. Paul uses the judge among yourselves line elsewhere. And if you've read it at all, it's always meant to be sort of a, so it's obvious, right? Like it's obvious. Everybody, everybody on board here, like this is obvious. So we're all going to judge together the same thing. Let's keep going. Waypoint. Checkpoint. This is where we go back when we, when we reload from the save. This is where we go. That's what he's saying when he says, judge among yourselves. Okay, everybody, we all got this. We're on the same page. Good, let's go. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Since Paul just spent 12 verses, 11 verses, arguing that it's not proper, let's get on board. Let's get on board. So the question is, what is the covering? And we looked back at verses 5 and 6, right? 5 and 6. And we saw the silliness of interpreting it as hair. 
Verse 14, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? This is where the the argument comes. People go, see, look, all of a sudden we're talking about long hair and short hair. Well, yeah. Yeah, we are. So there's two doctrines here. Men, have short hair. Men, don't cover your heads in worship. Women, have long hair. Women, cover your heads in worship. So we got. Those are the verses. Those are the points. Now, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? So what is the idea of the nature there? Is it, a, is it about an empirical evidence to pick it up from the design? No. Is the idea here that it's the, it's the tendency that is written on the heart? Yes. Uh, is it the idea that this is the law that's written on the heart that is able to be found as it's laid out in the special revelation? Yes. So does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. Now that word covering, everybody goes, ah, see, it's the same thing. Well, it's a different word in the Greek. Because so far, when we talk about covering, we're saying katakaluptatai. And now here we're saying parabuleu. Now, maybe you can't read Greek, but you can probably tell those aren't the same word. Now, they both talk about the idea of, of covering something, which is why they both translated covering, but they're different words. It's not the same thing. The idea is the hair is a glory for her, which, by the way, adds to the argument line whose glory is supposed to be on display. If man is the glory of God, woman is the glory of man, and the woman's hair is her glory, which ones should be covered if we're trying to show God's glory? The woman's hair, which is a way of symbolically covering her so that what's left is the glory of God. That's the idea. It's the line of argument. That's what we've got so far. Now, if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Now, here's another really good thing that the seminaries have come up with since the 60s. One of these bad ideas that we're going to just throw out. They say, when it says, but if anyone seems to be contentious, and we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God, and that means nobody in the church should argue about this. Okay, well, first of all, didn't Paul just talk about imitating him as he imitates Christ? And didn't he just spend a bunch of time arguing about this? So do you think Paul is saying don't argue about this? Does that make any sense at all? Right, it doesn't. It's nonsense. It makes Paul into this, like, crazy person. And this isn't comedy hour. It wasn't Paul writing a joke letter. The point was... If anybody is contentious with the doctrine that I have just delivered to you, the apostolic doctrine, this tradition, the apostolic tradition that the churches have, contending against what I just taught is not the apostolic tradition. And guess what? It's also not the Catholic tradition. It's not the tradition of the churches. It's not the received tradition by the other churches. 
So if you fight against head coverings, you're doing what's contrary to the apostolic tradition, and you're doing what's contrary to what the churches have received. Verse 17. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Okay, so now he's changing subjects. He praised them early on for keeping the tradition. And now he's not praising them for a different failure. So there we have from verses 2 through 16 an argument to support something that's being kept. He's saying, you guys are wearing head coverings? Good job. Keep doing it. Here's the arguments to use in case anybody comes to you contentiously arguing that you should take the head coverings off. That's what he just did. And then he switches subjects and says, now here's something I'm not praising you for. Now, this chunk of text that we just went through, verses 2 through 16, not only is going to be something that's important here, but he's going to use it later on when he's arguing about women talking. Okay, So what's, what's the, the point here? The point here is there's something going on in Corinth where women are praying and prophesying in public, and that's not supposed to happen. Why? Because in the public assembly, women are not supposed to talk. He's going to get there. He's going to get there. And he's reminding them, hey, I'm glad that you guys haven't been throwing off the head coverings yet. Because uh, here are reasons why you need to keep doing that. Who does he expect to start arguing that they should take head coverings off? The women that want to keep talking? He's expecting them, as soon as he makes the argument down the line, that they're going to start saying, hey, we don't need these. These are symbols of authority, and we're able to talk by ourselves and exercise our own authority. So he's establishing this. Everybody's already doing it. And before they start arguing against it, he's reminding them why they do it. That way, when this inevitably becomes a target to justify women pastor prophets, they're ready. Let's remember in our own culture, head coverings went first, then woman pastor. Then homosexual agenda. Then transgenderism. Sex isn't really a thing. There's like a million genders or an infinite number of genders or whatever, the destruction of male and female is a destruction of the created order. It's a destruction of the order being restored in Christ. We have to defend these things. Head coverings are a rebellion against the prince of the power of the air. It is a raising of the fist in a glorious and beautiful and feminine way, and it makes the men be displayed as men and has their responsibility to lead come up. The biggest complaint that women tend to have in the church is, my husband won't lead. You want to see him lead? Acknowledge his authority and say, this is your problem. This is your problem. This is something you need to deal with. This is the weight you need to bear. You will see men lead. Verse 17. We continue to talk about things that are in the public worship. And here now is something that's going to be gone after. It's an issue that needs to be fixed. 
And it also establishes for us two very important things that also get dealt with later in terms of the women's sphere. Women are told to not speak in the church, and they're told to ask questions at home. And this text helps to establish the difference in terms of the idea of the public assembly, that they're eating wrongly in the public assembly, and they need to eat at home for their physical nourishment, as opposed to trying to eat in the public assembly for their physical nourishment. It's for the spiritual nourishment. It's a symbolic eating. Verse 17. Now, in giving... These instructions I do not praise you, since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. This is an uncharitable report, and he's believing it. And he's about to explain why he believes it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. And that word approved has the same root the chemoi, as later the idea of examining yourself. It's going to have the same root. And so this idea is, yeah, there's going to be factions. You know why there's going to be factions? So the heretics and the schismatics can be identified and removed. When you're schismatic, when you're heretical, when you cause division unjustly, it's really great because you've just put a targeting apparatus on you so that God can blow you out of the water and remove you from the church through the rain of Christ in the church using the keys. It's good. It's a targeting mechanism. Verse 19. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. So it's possible to assemble and have a public assembly and to have a covenant meal there, and to have it be an illegitimate, an unlawful assembly, and an illegitimate, unlawful covenanting meal, to have it not be the Lord's Supper. And one of the things that's a mark there for it to be the Lord's Supper or not, is is there an exercise of discipline to guard the table? Is there an exercise of discipline to guard the table? That's a mark of the church that is given for us. Government is a mark of the church. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. So there's a failure to guard the table. People are just taking, and they're doing it for themselves, and they're getting, they're getting so much food and so much of the wine that there's none left for others, so much that they can get drunk on it, and other people don't have anything. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Are that kind of... Feasting, that kind of eating where you're trying to fill your stomach, is for the house. Notice the distinction there, the public sphere and the private sphere. Hospitality is one kind of breaking of bread. Covenant meal is another kind of breaking of bread. They're different. Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? So the difference between houses and church. Houses and church. That doesn't mean you can't have a church meeting in a house. right? It's not, that's not what's being said. What's being said is, there's a difference between the public meeting, which is the time of assembly, versus a private meeting, which is not the public assembly. The public assembly, you have an authoritative call for people to get together. The people in the church are obligated to appear. The house is a private meeting. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. I like how Paul is really clear when he's being critical. Verse 23. 
For I received from the Lord. Notice the same sort of language, the idea of receiving. He received head coverings, and he received the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That's what he did before he delivered it to the church. With the head coverings. That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Symbolic meaning, symbolic actions. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Symbolic meaning, symbolic actions. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. The idea of a visible word, right? You proclaim the Lord's death with words, and with these symbols, they mean the same propositions. So, the Lord's Supper is a proclaiming of the gospel propositions. It's a visible word. It, when we do it, it's saying, Oh, the new covenant! It's a highly efficient way of communicating the entire covenant of grace, which is the Bible. So it represents all of it. Verse 27, Therefore, notice the therefore, because of all this meaning, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. There's that word that has that same root, examine there. It has that um, so that's that doikim, that root that we saw earlier, the idea of who's approved. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Right. So we examine people to see if they are heretics or schismatics, and we should examine ourselves. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now, the idea there is he's not judging the sacramental meaning, which was explained properly. And he's also not discerning the church properly. He doesn't know the difference between the house and the church, what is appropriate in one or the other. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Nowhere are we told if you get circumcised without faith, it's going to result in you physically dying. Nor are we told that baptism is going to result if it's done wrongly and you physically dying we are told if you take the Lord's Supper wrongly it results in you physically dying you can get sick you can die there is a difference between the standard used to administer baptism and the standard used to administer the Lord's Supper which is why you examine people for the Lord's Supper And with baptism, even when they can't talk, you baptize them. There is a difference in terms of the way the curses work. The curse in a baptism for a reprobate person waits. And the curse for a reprobate person who takes the Lord's Supper wrongly is faster. And for an elect person, when you see the discipline of God, there is a faster discipline in relationship to the Lord's Supper. That's what we're taught here. 
take the Lord's Supper wrongly, it will speed it up. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Now, this isn't how some of you feel like falling asleep right now. This is death. That is the idea. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Here's the way we read this. We need to examine ourselves. If we don't examine ourselves, then what's going to happen is there's going to be judgment that comes upon us, and that's going to be rough. Yeah, that's true. That's all there. But you know what else we're missing here? Remember earlier on he said, we judge in the church, and you know who judges in the world? God. What he's saying is, if you don't guard the table, you know what happens? Your church becomes the world. And then there will be judgment. If you do not guard the table, your church becomes the world, and then the church just gets judged by God. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. This is talking about a plural corporate thing. We as individuals need to judge ourselves, and we as a church need to judge our own table. We need to judge ourselves, plural. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So he seeks to bring churches to repentance. God seeks to bring churches to repentance. Sometimes you'll have churches go apostate and they will repent and come back. Verse 33, Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. (laughs) The, The therefore is, Since if you don't do this, you're not going to be at church anymore, why don't you hang out a little bit and wait, and why don't you all eat at the same time? Because that way you can still be at church and not be judged by God. Who's with me? That's that's Paul's argument. I like the therefore. Therefore is, is solid. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. These are teachings about how to have public worship in good order. The coming together is where the head coverings go, and it's also where this eating is different from the eating at home. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights? All right, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to use the Lord's Supper properly. We ask that you would bless the use of head coverings and long hair and short hair and uncovered heads of men. And we ask that you would cause these visible symbols to be used as a testimony, both to all of us, to each other, and also externally to the world and to the church at large. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please open your Psalters. Psalm 45, part 2. Please stand. King's daughters were among honorable women. Upon your right hand stood the queen, clothed in gold of Ophir. Listen and consider, O daughter, give your ear. Now forget your own people and the house of your father. 
So will the king desire greatly for your beauty, for he is truly now your Lord, and you will worship him. Tyre's daughter will be there with a gift to bestow. Even the rich among the crowds will seek for your favor. The daughter of the king is glorious within. Her clothes are made with finest gold. She'll be brought to the king in clothes with needlework and with her companions who follow her as she proceeds to be brought unto you. With gladness you'll be brought and enter the palace. Instead of fathers, now your sons. You'll make, you'll make princes of earth. I'll cause your name to be recalled in every age. Therefore will the people praise you forever and ever. The idea here is you have the one nation, Israel, that is united to Christ, and then you have all the other nations being brought in. It's the idea of covenanting with the other nations. Is what's here. And the idea that the beauty of all the nations and their rulers and their rich will all be brought to the king. They will be made into subjection. And there will be sons that are born in every nation that are princes that are under the king. And so we have this idea of us being kings, being vice-regents of God, being given dominion, the idea of the church being given authority. All that's there. And so that's uh, manifested here in this psalm.